This is Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice, a conversation based on the book Hurt with Fetters, hosted by Pastor Greg Smith and author Jason Karsh. This is a podcast for people who want to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. Welcome again to episode 12 of Hurt with Fetters. My name is Greg Smith and I'm here with author Jason Karch, author of the book Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice. And today we are going to take a reflection on dehumanization. Jason, welcome and thank you for, uh, thank you for taking time to join us today. Glad to be here, Pastor. I want to begin really just with a thought. Let's Let's not just define dehumanization, but let's talk about it in terms. To, to me, it's a there's some semantics involved in this issue, which is the way we talk about other people or other human beings, which reflects the way we think about other human beings. So you begin this chapter, chapter 11, with a story uh, in for my listeners here, I want you to think about the words that is used here. Would you just relate the story for us real quick? Sure. I remember reading a newspaper article that in the bold headline it said, Offender Exonerated for 1986 Rape. And in the article went on to kind of summarize the crime for which the man had been convicted. It ended up interviewing the sister of the victim, the lady who had suffered Uh, These abuses had since passed away, and so the newspaper interviewed the sister of the victim and then detailing the crime again, and then almost as an afterthought in the article, it mentions how DNA evidence had excluded the man from being the perpetrator of this crime defined and outlined in the article. So he was wrongly convicted. He was sent to prison. He spent how many years in prison? 25 years, 25, 25, 26 years. For a crime that he did not commit. It was proven by the DNA evidence that he was innocent, right? Yeah, and just think about the subtlety here. The bold, large print title of the article, Offender Exonerated for 1986 Rape. This is an innocent man who had been robbed wrongly of a quarter of a century of his life. And the way that we're not scandalized by that is because we tack this label, offender. He is not an offender. He's an innocent man who was wrongly convicted of a crime he did not commit. But the way that people are able to go throughout their daily routines or whatever without being scandalized by these times. Well, he's an offender. What does that communicate to the reader of the article? Right. Which is the is the issue of semantics that reflects the way that we think about people. When I was reading this, I was thinking about the way that soldiers are trained to to go into combat. It's very difficult to to train a soldier to kill another human being. So what the army or the military typically does is dehumanizes the enemy, enemy, right? So for example, in World War II, we weren't fighting Germans and Japanese. We were fighting the Krauts and the Nips. In Vietnam, we weren't fighting Vietnamese soldiers. We were fighting gooks and on and on. And And so you can convince a guy to kill a gook and how he deals with that afterwards then is his problem. The 
time, all we want him to do is kill. It seems to me it's the same type of thing. And you kind of had some experience with, you know, the different labels that are placed upon a person who enters the criminal justice system as a, quote, offender, right? What are, how has that worked out for you, I guess, personal testimony? Well, I remember when I first got incarcerated, like on the ID card, it said inmate on it. And the word offender communicated a particular type of crime, you know, like sex offenses, sex offenders, which has a stigma all of its own within prisons. You know, there was a time where people who were convicted of those types of crimes, you know, they were like the low men on the totem pole. However, they were separated from everyone else because their lives probably were threatened by the non-sex offenders. Yeah, it was bad. It was bad for them. And so there's even somewhat of a dehumanization within the prison population itself. You know, those, they had no real place among convicts or whatever, you know. So I remember when I first came to prison, they give you a little paper ID before you get your, your actual plastic ID card. And they put me in a, in a transit housing, and I'm looking around, and everybody has these ID cards that say offender on them. So I go and push the little intercom button that communicates to the officer in the, the picket area. So he comes, and he's like, yeah, what do you need? And so I said, hey, you know, you got me in the wrong place. I'm in prison for a robbery, and you got me in here with all these sex offenders. And silence fell over this day room. All the dominoes stopped. Everybody stopped talking. Everybody's looking at me. And you're so, 19 years old. Is yeah, I'm a kid. And so finally this Hispanic man spoke up and he said, Hey, man, who you calling? A sex offender. <laughs> and I'm like, well, man, you got the card that says offender on it. So these guys now are realizing that I'm green. I don't know what I'm talking about. So they kind of laugh this off and they're like, yeah, you're going to get one too. Everybody gets one of these now. Well, the change just in the terminology from inmate to offender was not something that was readily accepted. And so even now within Texas prisons, they're trying to get away from offender. Now the ID cards again say inmate on them, but the language that is used to talk about people who are housed within the Texas prison system are residents. So there's a shift in the language that almost happens every couple of decades or so, you know, they'll try to switch it up to, I don't know the reason for that. Assuage the sensibilities perhaps because, you know, you talk about an offender and you talk about a inmate or a uh, resident implies, oh yeah, these folks are just coming and living here because, you know, they're looking for a place to stay and they need a place to stay and so yeah, we're housing them here where offender is, uh, yeah, definitely a a word that connotates something negative, definitely negative. So how does this play over, how does this, you know, spill into the psyche, the the average of the average individual out there or the average, you know, believer? Why is this an issue? Well, I think it's an issue because there is a, you know, what I define as a cognitive conditioning of dehumanization built into you know this current narrative of criminal justice that we've discussed that I think has advanced over uh, the decades and it ends up weaving itself into the media 
uh, and into the training of prison guards, of, of volunteers who come into places like this. And just think about, you know, a very popular television show in the 1990s was America's Most Wanted. And so they have wanted list of criminals that they're trying to track down, bring into custody so that they can be prosecuted for the crimes in which they're on the run for. And, you know, Walsh would say, you know, America needs, we need your help tonight to apprehend this monster. Or, or this animal. animal. Or this beast to get them off the streets. Now, 90% of the time, these are people who are accused of a crime. And within our system, you're innocent until proven guilty. So they haven't, their activities have not been adjudicated in a court of law. They're not guilty of anything yet. There's maybe a strong suspicion of guilt. But the fact remains that before they're even placed into a courtroom and tried for these crimes to determine whether they're guilty or not, they're already construed as animals or beasts or monsters, you know, or whatever the case may be to kind of distance in the minds of people that this is actually a human being, however wrong he or she may have acted, whatever atrocities or tragedies they may have committed, they're still, at the end of the day, a human being. And so why is the push or the goal or the desire to, to dehumanize the, the individual who has committed a crime or has been accused of committing a crime? What does it do, I guess? Well, I think the reason for that is because how else do you accept the way that crime is punished under the aegis of the current criminal justice system? How do we accept that unless we have it in our minds that these are not people, there's something else, there's something other? How do we exact these types of punishments on human beings? For instance, you and I just kicking ideas around talked about how somewhat of the moral sentiment of the German people. You know, the German people historically have been a proud people who have invested themselves in thinking through moral concepts, moral structures of morality. So by and large, you know, as a proud people, they were a good people morally. So how do you get a nation to turn a blind eye to the mass genocide of a group of people. How do you desensitize their moral sentiments to where they're able to do that? Well, the propaganda in Germany leading up to the Holocaust were Jews were classified as, as mice, as vermin, as parasites. And so you have to get it in people's head that somehow these people are less than people, they're less than human. So we're able to turn a blind eye to the fact that they're being treated the way that they're being treated. And I think the reason for the dehumanization associated with the criminal justice system is so that the American people are not scandalized by what's going on here. So basically, if we're not talking about human beings, if we're talking about, for example, a dog, I can lock up a dog and throw away the key or do whatever, and it doesn't it doesn't really matter. I can't do that to a human being, or when that happens to a human being, it it violates my sensibilities or something, and so I might rise up and do something about it. If I see this going on, if I see this happening to another human being, it ought to stir something inside me to think that this ain't right. Now, if this person is no longer a person or is something other, it is what it is. 
we're not scandalized by the treatment of that person. Yeah, and in some ways we treat animals even a lot better than, than human beings these days. You know, I, you know, after I did the five years in prison, I ended up working for a public works department at a city. And the city didn't have its own animal control, and they were having issues with the county. Anytime they had an issue with animal control, they had to call the county, and so they're having issues with the county animal control. So the city makes the decision to send one of its employees to animal control officer school so that they would have their own animal control in the city itself. And I got selected to do that. You know, as a convicted felon, I go to animal control officer school. So while I'm in the school, you know, the lion's share of the animal control officer training deals with the shelters, you know, animal shelters. Housing the, yeah. the, shelter, the animals. You know, county shelters or even city shelters, you know, the standards of shelters. And one of the things that even back then was somewhat shocking to me is that they must have central heat and air. They must be temperature controlled environments. And so if you have a dog in a cage, you remove him for whatever reason, just put him in another cage or release him back to his owners or euthanize the animal, whatever the case. Before you can put another animal in that cage, it has to be cleaned and sterilized. And after the sterilization process, it must sit vacant for at least 24 hours before another animal can be placed in the cage. And all those things, maybe, you know, the air conditioning or the heating, the, uh, the temperature control and the cleaning of the cage, most people would say that sounds like, you know, that's probably, a, yeah. That's, that's a, a reasonable thing. thing. Yeah, sure. You know. But as I'm undergoing these classes, I'm reflecting on my experience, this five-year experience in prison to where there's no air conditioning. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking back on my own experience and guys get into an altercation in a cell where chemical agents are deployed to stop it. They're taken out, placed in lockup or whatever, and then somebody else is just moved right in the cell so it doesn't sit vacant. So you're moved into a cell that's a bloody mess with chemical agents in it. You may have a wash rag and some baby shampoo to try to clean this mess up. So I'm reflecting on my experience in prison and listening to the standards that the law says animals have to be treated like this. But I'm thinking about how guys in prison are not afforded the same type of standard. So to say or to try to make the argument that dehumanization is not a part of our criminal justice system or how crime is punished, I think is naive. So if someone sitting out there goes, well, these guys have committed a crime and so they're just getting what they deserve, what's the response? What is desert? It goes back to, you know, our discussion on punishment. For the average person to say, well, you know, this person committed a crime, he's getting what he deserves. Well, in some countries, uh, in, in times past, if you stole a piece of fruit, you lost your hand. So how do we, how do we structure this idea of desserts, number one? And I think number two, it's important for speaking directly to people who profess to be Christians to think through the restorative elements of punishment the reconciliation aspects of punishment that doesn't factor in at all to the way that we punish crime today. Which comes back to a to the basic humanity of, of every person and where that comes from. But before we go there, or before we leave this thought, I want to, 
you know, just just think through because, you know, my experience within the prison is limited, but I have seen the way that many of the of those who work in the prison treat or respond to or you know look at you know the average prisoner. So, I want you just to talk about that for just a second. Is this is this part of the training? Is this uh, the, the dehumanizing aspect? Is it is it something that I feel like is is put within the system for a purpose? And what is that purpose? How does that how does that work out? Well, I I do believe that just within the last couple of years, there has been an effort to, for Texas prisons at least, to distance themselves from the way that they've construed criminals in the past. So now there's a there's a an emphasis on hey we really need to you know think about how we treat these offenders or these inmates. I think there's a move away from the more definitive dehumanizing elements of the training that guards receive because at one point that was part of the staff training. You cannot look at these people as people. You know because if if you do you automatically put yourself in a position to be victimized by master manipulators. If somehow a prisoner can get a hold of just a single heartstring and pull it a little bit, you're ruined as a correctional officer. This was part of the training. Now, I do believe in the last couple of years there's been a distancing from that, but Rome was not built in a day. It's not. It's very, very difficult to eradicate such an entrenched mentality I heard a uh, an officer who had been a captain at one point, and due to issues or whatever, had lost his rank. You know, speaking to a group of officers who had finished the academy, or actually on the unit now, training to be out. You know, on a shift on their own, and he's basically telling them, "You you need a one-word vocabulary dealing with the prison population." And it's a very simple word. Nobody has to be a highly educated person to know this word. The only word in your vocabulary dealing with the people inside this institution is no. He said, you have no other conversation for them whatsoever. He said, most of them are in here for killing their mothers with hammers. So you ain't got no business talking to them. Tell them no. Whatever the question is, no. That's the only word you need to know. And so that's the mentality. But I think that, again, you know, over the last couple of years, there's a drift away from that. And I, I thank God for that. But uh, again, you know, it's, it's very difficult to dig up something that's been so ingrained uh, for decades and decades. And one of the things, that, or one point you make here, is that, uh, that as part of the, the training in the past, anyway, that this deliberate effort to, you know, to instill within you know, the correctional officer, uh, you know, that there is this, this separation you know, even uh, between human beings. But you, you know, you mentioned that one, the one former prison guard made the statement that prisoners were to officers what blacks were to whites in the antebellum South. I think that really, that would communicate or resonate with a lot of people or help us to understand the mentality. Yeah, because you think about uh, prior to 
uh, the Civil War, prior to emancipation, prior to Reconstruction, African American people in the South were not viewed as human beings. And it's the same thing when you're dealing with convicted felons. And you know, I mentioned in the chapter how uh, Michel Foucault, the French uh, philosopher, you know, wrote a very famous book called Discipline and Punish about the history of punishment uh, in the West. And he brings out as early as 1841, you know, people began to publish ethnographies of delinquency, and delinquency is just an archaic term for criminality. So as early as 1841, people who committed crimes were construed as a race in and of themselves. So it didn't matter if you were, you know, black, white, or Hispanic, whatever the case may be. If you're a criminal, you're other. You're something less than the normal people or as we've construed it, you know, in our episodes in the past, if you're the good people, then these are the bad people. And as bad people, there's something less than real people. Right. And so, again, you if you're going to, you can do basically whatever you want to do with something that is not human. Sure. But you can't do uh, with someone who is just like you. So you have to really come to this mentality and cross-cultural-wide, you know, or... or or across the culture, or or across the uh, the people out there. If I if I think about those who are behind those razor wires, if I think about them as something that's not like me because of what they've done or whatever they've gotten caught, they've gotten convicted, whatever, then whatever happens to them in there really doesn't affect me, or relate to me, or matter to me. Right. Exactly. Just continuing this point, you know, you you mentioned a quote from Oliver Wendell Holmes, one of uh, you know who was uh, Supreme Court, you know, justice, and he actually he actually at one point was arguing for the forced sterilization of undesirables, in particular those who had committed crime, and his quote was, "It's better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring of crime." or let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. In other words, somebody commits a crime, we don't want to let him have kids because those kids are just going to do the same thing and or they're going to starve to death because they're imbeciles and so sterilize them. They're, they're not human beings. So. Yeah, he has, a, he, you know, he has a genetic disposition, a psychological disposition, a sociological disposition, some type of disposition to commit crime that will be perpetuated in his progeny and we've got to prevent these type of people from uh, continuing their kind. Okay, so, so how does a believer at what point does a believer bring his theology to bear to this particular issue well i think primarily it goes back to you know a question of anthropology you know we discussed how every human being is created in the image and likeness of god you know that is our ontological constitution as human beings and because of that we have an inherent dignity and value and worth and there's no way regardless of what anybody has ever done that we can put ourselves in a position to where we cannot identify with one another in that very basic way as human beings so we can never distance ourselves from 
another person. Now, it's hard to, you know, and we, we talked about how my early experience with just the word offender, or how sex offenders were treated in prison, how they were stigmatized. And, you know, even as somebody who comes to know Christ, who comes to know uh, the saving knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ within this context, it was, it was a challenge for me to be able to identify with somebody that had committed that type of crime because it had been conditioned in my mind that as somebody who is a robber he's something he's something else he's a particular type of criminal and he, he don't he don't belong over here with us type thing so it began to be a challenge to identify with people who committed certain types of crimes and it was something that early on in my Christian experience that I had to really seek God to help me to to love people to have a concern for people that had been it had been conditioned in my mind to count as other as something different than myself and so I think first and foremost for the Christian we have to be able to identify with everybody as a as a human being on the same level that we ourselves are human beings you know first and foremost and number two don't buy into this false narrative. Again, cling tenaciously to the story that God tells about who we are as human beings and what he says about the goal of punishment, the goal of justice, the goal of law. What is the goal of law? We, we, we discussed this in previous episodes, but let's go back to it because I think it brings to bear, uh, it comes to bear this, this issue. What is the goal? What are we trying to do? in the criminal justice system or what should we uh, try to do based upon the uh, the reality that God is personal God, God is love, God is uh, uh, grace, God sent his son to take our place and to remove our sin and guilt to die. Yeah, God, you know, is a God of, of love and so love implies relationship and if law is the legislation of God's love, then the law ought to help create for us parameters by which we maintain relationship. Or in the event that somebody drives outside of the lines and violates that relationship, it ought to provide a means by which that relationship can be set right again. You know, even if that is worked out through the context of punishment, you know, under the ages of justice, Punishments ought to be for the restoration of relationship, of the, the reconciliation between two parties who are not rightly relating to one another because of violations of the law, violations of this relationship. And I think that how we've discussed uh, before, you can pick up a, a legal dictionary or Black's Laws Dictionary or some other legal dictionary and there's no way in our system that the concept of reconciliation is defined legally. And so for the Christian, that has to be a very central part of how we understand law, justice, punishment, all of that. And I think you even mentioned before that you know, if you uh, were to uh, make parole when your freedom get out of this place, if you tried to go and reconcile with your victim, uh, in particular I'm thinking of the, 
of the the woman who was the manager of the of the restaurant, right? Who offered you grace? Uh, if folks remember that story, when when she had the opportunity in your in your sentencing phase of the trial to basically where others were going to hope you rot in prison or whatnot, and she just said, "God bless you." Is she the only one who would look at you and offer you grace? And at that point, I think you said, you know, you'd never experienced grace before, didn't know what that was. But if you were to, if you were to, to go free tomorrow, and you say, you know, I want to go find that woman, and I want to thank her, and then make restitution, do whatever to make it right, what would happen? I'm coming back to prison. Because? I would, I would have violated my parole. Because the parole says... Yeah, you can't have any contact, you know, with the victims of your crime. So not only is reconciliation not part of the criminal justice system, it's actually criminalized itself. Yes. Which, which would be a complete total 180 degree switch from what we ought to be trying to do in the criminal justice system, if we come at it from a perspective of the love of God, the connection that we have with God and with human beings, and when crime or whatever violates or sin violates that relationship, the goal is to restore the relationship. But when we're thinking about the dehumanization, you can't reconcile a human being with a non-human being. And I think that's the problem. That's the point. So if someone who commits crime is considered to be less than human, there's not only no desire to reconcile, there's not even that possibility. We have to restore basic humanity. Yeah, that's not even conceptually built into our legal system. And, and it's, it's legally excluded from it. You know, as you mentioned. You know, how should a believer think about these things how should how should i approach you know this issue i if if i understand the issue and i understand the theological implications or or ramifications how should i how should i work what should i do okay you know and we we've mentioned in the past how well think about it like this so you know dostoevsky he said that you know prisons are punishment they ought not be punishing and so we you know mentioned in the past that I don't advocate for the abolition of prisons I don't think that's feasible I think that there's a, a necessary component of prisons within the criminal justice system in America and Texas but prison itself is the punishment sending somebody away from society, separating them from society, putting them from in a families. Yeah, in a place like this uh, for a number of, of years or whatever, that is the punishment. You don't have to necessarily link dehumanization as a part of that so that prison now becomes punishing. It doesn't have to be part of prison to grind somebody underneath the boot of uh, the establishment or the institution that that ought not be the case and when prisons become that when prisons become punishing then they become identical with 
you know the, the criminality and the violence that they are supposed to prevent and combat and so for the Christian I think that you know they can begin to question you know well, what are the sentencing guidelines for certain crimes what are the the uh, you know the parole possibilities what you know what does the parole process look like what do you know what are the the, the current American correction standards uh, for prisons they begin they can begin to ask these questions because most people you know as you well know are fundamentally ignorant of not all just, of those things not just fundamentally so but willfully so I mean I think you know I've mentioned before that I've driven past you know this particular unit for about I don't know seven eight years thinking that gosh I, I wonder what goes on in there I, I, I might need to check it out or I might Maybe there's something that God would have me to do, but then just continuing to drive on by and never, you know, stopping and figuring it out until, you know, finally one day I did. Yeah. And I don't know if that's open necessarily to everybody, but I think the the point would be that for most people, you take this person who committed a crime, lock him up, and what happens then is not necessarily any of my concern. I guess I've got to trust the people who are doing it or criminal justice system or whatever to do it and I'll just go about my business. Yeah, and this works two ways because there was a one of the former uh, public relations persons for the Texas prison system. She uh, you know began her journalism career I think, you know, with the Huntsville newspaper, so she would go and her responsibility was to report on executions when George Bush was the governor when the state of Texas were executing a whole bunch of criminals who had been convicted of capital crimes. Well, based on her rubbing elbows with the current uh, public relations person for Texas prisons, she ended up getting that job and ended up leaving the agency under clouds of suspicion or whatever. I think she works for some law firm in Houston now, but she ended up writing a book about her experience with the Texas prison system, but one of her colleagues he called what goes on here as intellectual inbreeding. It's people who have lifelong investments in corrections who are talking to other people who have lifelong investments in corrections and how policies are made, how all of this goes on, is perpetuated through these types of conversations. And they're oblivious. And likewise, people in the real world are oblivious to these types of conversations that perpetuate what has been going on in prisons across the United States for years and years and years. So just an awareness of what's going on. And when I think about this, I, I read the magisterial biography by Gita Sereny on Albert Speer. And I think her subtitle to the biography is His Quest for Truth. One of the things that Speer maintained until his death was even as the architect of Germany of Hitler's minister to war later in the war effort that he was oblivious to what was going on with the Jewish people. Well, hardly anybody believed that. You know, nobody necessarily buys into Spears' claim that he didn't know what was going on. So he was put on trial in Nuremberg. Oh yeah, he was put on trial during Nuremberg, sentenced to 20 years, one of the few high-ranking Nazi officials that were not executed at Nuremberg, served 20 years, 20 calendar years, day for day, and spanned out. But for the world, whether or not Spear was actually ignorant of what was going on, for the world, 
when this became exposed on a world stage, that excuse was not good enough. And so I think for Christians, whether it be a fundamental or even a will for ignorance, that's not a good excuse. But also a spear, and just kind of bringing that to bear, did he not also claim, well, it was legal? I mean, what was happening was, was that spear or was that somewhere else? What? Well, there were there were several of the high-ranking you know officials who maintained it. We were what just, they did. Yeah, we were just doing our duty. We, we were, were just following orders. orders. I don't think Spear ever made that argument. His argument from day one was, I didn't know. Okay, but there were others who would say that what we did was just it was legal. It was, yeah, it was I legal. I wasn't violating the law, so I should not yeah. be held accountable. And had I not done it, I would have been violating the law and been punished by my own government for not obeying the law. Which goes back to, and these people were encountered as human beings anyway. So when you bring that to bear in terms of, uh, or you think about it in terms of the criminal justice system, again, it's very easy, I think, on the, on the part of most of us, whether it's willful ignorance or just don't want to know or, or you know, whatever, which would be willful ignorance, I guess. What, what takes place inside you know, the average prison unit is taking place to human beings. To human beings. Not animals, not something less than human, not some other. What, whatever is happening, whatever takes place, whatever incarceration looks like, is taking place to human beings, to individuals who are created in the image of God. Now, for a child of God, for a believer, for a Christian, the basic reality of life is or ought to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. How does the gospel of Jesus Christ apply to the criminal justice system and this business of humanity or inhumanity or dehumanization? Well, foremost, the gospel in a nutshell is John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life so God the creator of all of this so loved the world so here it is we have this idea of the love of God being applied to a world that was messed up that was separated from him and so that he might have a relationship between himself and his creation uh, reconciled he sent his son to die for the sins of the world to pay a penalty that any sinner in and of himself or all sinners collectively could not pay for themselves he did that so that reconciliation could occur and not only reconciliation but there is this concept of forgiveness built into the gospel that so when somebody believes in the gospel they are forgiven of their sins because the penalty has been paid and you know the Bible says that in the gospel when forgiveness is afforded by God our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west and they are remembered no more and so built into this concept of God's justice of God's love of God's law is this idea of forgiveness that is born out of the gospel and when you're forgiven and you, you mentioned this at the very end. When you're forgiven, the peace of God 
is now yours our peace with God therefore being justified by faith Romans 5 1 we, now have, we peace. have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ well that actually brings us to an end of our conversation and sets us up for the next episode a reflection on forgiveness Jason any closing words to this episode I'm glad I'm forgiven hallelujah yeah. glad I'm forgiven and I have peace that that uh, whatever I've done or whoever I was Jesus changed it praise God Amen. thank you for joining us today and may God bless you hopefully this has been encouraging while also challenging you to think through these issues in a new or more concrete way Listen next time for our conversation on further theological reflections on criminal justice. Thanks for listening to Hurt with Fetters, a podcast that helps us to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. The book Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice is available at Amazon.com.